Hendon. So uh, we're delighted, Chris, to have you back here in New Zealand, and we're so looking forward to your ministry to us. And so come on up, brother, and uh, open the word, preach the word, and we look forward to what the Lord's going to share through you. you. Hey, what a joy to be with you. Uh, Welcome to Impact. I'm excited. Can you tell? I really am. Uh, It is just a blessing. I love this conference. I feel like family uh, when I get to come back and see many of your faces that I've known before. And uh, really, it is my second favorite country. All right, don't be insulted by that. Uh, I, I, love, uh, I love the U.S., I love the beauty of it, but man, New Zealand is really a close second. The only country that my wife and I have ever considered ministering in other than the U.S., and so uh, it is great to be with you. It is a joy. Greetings from FBC, from John Plesnick, who led a short-term team to Onikawa, and from Nigel, who is actually going through some health issues right now, so we're hoping he'll get better soon. Uh, always an honor to open God's Word. I was told that I needed to let you know about a book, so uh, I'm just being obedient here. Uh, I just wrote my doctoral dissertation, just graduated from the Master Seminary with that degree, and uh, this is one of the books. Actually, this book itself was the most significant help in writing a dissertation about training men and discipleship itself, and so it is not exactly of our theological persuasion. Uh, It's not from a Reformed perspective, but it is still uh, an accurate assessment and very theological, but very practical, too, uh, from a prof at uh, one of the local colleges there in the U.S. And uh, anyway, if you really want to understand discipleship, this is the book, Following the Master. And uh, you can get that in that bookstore. And keep that bookstore alive, folks. We need good resources. Uh, we really do. So uh, I guess I'm done with that. Uh, perfect. Uh, awesome. Well, you know, it is an honor to open God's Word with you, and I'm uh, hoping that you'll open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I know you have your outline there uh, in your bulletin and in your, uh, not your bulletin, but your little booklet, and so you want to track along with me on that. That'll help you a little bit. Today I want to borrow a message that was actually preached thousands of years ago, but it is far more relevant than the evening news. It is an amazing message in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, and you can follow along there in your outline and allow me to reconstruct the historical backdrop of this particular setting. The children of Israel were winding their way through the wilderness and came upon a place called Kadesh Barnea, and it is really just a wide place on the road, but it became a place where a decision was made, and it was a decision that actually established their destiny. Uh, God said, go directly into the land, go there, and they responded with, let's send a committee. One of the worst things you can ever say, let's appoint a committee. One of the death knells of the local church, a committee. And they sent in, and in response to that committee, they got a majority report and a minority report. Americans think that the majority is always right, and we know for a fact that that is not true. In fact, in this particular situation, the majority was dead wrong. They looked at the land, they saw the people there, and what did they say? They looked like the All Blacks. We're going to get creamed. This is going to be a massive disaster. It's really there in the Hebrew text, All Blacks. The two came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, The Lord is with us, no problem. They listened to the majority report, and as a result, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And then ultimately, only Joshua and Caleb, the two, were able to then enter into the land. 
And so now in the book of Deuteronomy, after that 40 years of wandering, Israel has finally ready to enter the land. And here you find Moses' great obsession. He has an obsession with obedience to the Word of God. To follow our God. To honor Him. To do what He asks. To maintain relationship with Him. And to understand and worship Him would be to follow in obedience to His Word. It is this obsession that says, make sure we do it right this time. You say, what do you mean? Well, doing it right this time means we need to make training a priority. We need to make sure that we're mentoring the next generation. When you read your Old Testament, are you not overwhelmed with generation upon generation is often referred to. It is that we have a passion to make sure we're passing on the truth to the next generation. And this is the consuming passion of God here. Discipleship, investment, making sure this happens. Now some of you in this room, when you hear the word discipleship, all kinds of pictures come to bear. And interesting enough, the the thing that I hear most often is, I was never discipled, I don't know how to disciple. Look and put yourself in the place of the Israelites. Mom and dad blew it. There was no discipleship. There was no mentoring. The only thing that this generation of Israelites had to depend upon was the same thing that you have to depend upon. Are you ready? God's Word. They had God's Word. And they were going to model without experience what God had to say in order to invest in the next generation so they didn't repeat the mistake of the older generation. They needed to pass on the truth. They needed to invest into the next generation. So here Moses delivers three sermons of the past, the present, and the future in the book of Deuteronomy. He begins with this first sermon in preparation of what lies ahead. And this, after this brief introduction, he launches into sermon number one. Sermon number one, reminding God's people of the importance of obeying God's law, highlighting the top ten laws in chapter five, and then focusing on the, the overall most important law, the most important encouragement to love the Lord, your God, to love the God of the Word. And in the process of describing God's love for them, they are to respond in loving Him back. And they are in the midst of all this to aggressively train the next generation to love the Lord their God. Well, how do they do that? How do we, in a sense, influence the next generation? We know God is sovereign over salvation. But how do we influence that next generation so that they would cultivate that kind of heart? Well, let's talk about it. And here is what you have in this particular text on how to impact that next generation. And interesting enough, it is a gritty, labor-intensive process. We're not talking about fun here, folks. We're talking about hard work. And sometimes it's messy. Can I hear an amen to that? Would you agree that relationships with other Christians are messy? Amen? They are, and yet that is what God has called us to in which to honor Him. Interesting enough, impacting others is not for the faint-hearted. It is hard work. Now, I believe that we should forever remove from our vocabulary the word parenting. It has confused people. It has misled people. What you're really doing when you're parenting is discipleship. You are discipling your children. You are trying to mentor them is to the awareness of who God is, the necessity of salvation, and how to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're discipling them. 
and impacting students for Christ, impacting your own children, working with that older saint is not a picnic. It is grueling. It is strenuous. It is challenging. It is labor-intensive. But discipleship is what believers do. We're going to see that here in this text. We're going to see it tonight in Matthew chapter 28 in a unique way because glorifying relationships is who God is. You say, what do you mean by that? The Old Testament models, teaches, and commands believers to impact others with God's Word because that is who God is. What do you mean by that? Well, understand, you know, and remember who God is, right? The Creator who made you in His image, correct? And it says in Genesis 1, 26, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God created man in His own image, and in the image of God, He created him, male and female, He created them. Made in His image means, to some degree, relationship. Now, when you think of the perfect relationship, when you think of saying, well, what would I picture as the greatest relationship that has ever existed? Often we're drawn to maybe our parents or some couple that we know. But theologically, biblically, the very thing your mind should rush to is, are you ready? The Trinity. God has been in an eternal relationship from eternity past. He's been and will be in an eternal relationship in eternity future. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship. One and yet three distinct persons. Amen? That's where relationships come from. That's why we have relationships. That's why Jesus says and prays, I want them to be one as we are one. He's telling us that He wants us in our relationships to reflect the eternal relationship. Yes? And that is the goal and the design of our friendships, our marriages, our discipleship relationships, and the body of Christ itself. That's why it's horrific when you have Christians who are picking each other apart. Actually saying, yes, I want to live my life to the glory of God. And yet by the very essence of what they're doing, they're destroying the image of God. That They're destroying the way that they could glorify God. Are you tracking with me on this? Relationships, how you function with one another, either brings God glory or it maligns His glory. That's why it's so vital that we treat each other with love, with respect, that we build each other up and not tear each other down. Does that make sense? And we need to catch on that fire that we're reflecting the Trinity, God Himself. John 17, 11, you saw it. That they may be one as we are. And the glory which you have given to me, I've given to them. Why? That they may be one as we are one. John 17, 11. And because all things are done for the glory of God, then the goal of relationships is the glory of God reflecting His character and His eternal triune relationship. And because there is no greater way that you can bring glory to God than to be like Jesus Christ, well, then relationships are designed by God to make us like Christ. And you heard that last night with Mike, right? That we're proclaiming Christ and our relationships are to proclaim Him, show Him off, and demonstrate not just His character, but also His triune nature of three being one. Discipleship is simply this. Now, you want to write this down. Are you ready? Here it comes. Intentional relationships for the purpose of becoming like Christ. Intentional relationships 
for the purpose of becoming like Christ. They're intentional that you have this relationship in order that you would become like Christ and more like Christ. And from our very creation to our new creation, we are to glorify God by becoming like Jesus Christ in our relationships because God himself is in an eternal relationship. Now, what you find in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, you see evidences of discipleship. The word disciple is not listed in the Old Testament, but you see the process of discipleship everywhere. Moses and Joshua, Elisha and Elijah. Uh, you see David and his mighty men. And they are also relationships resulting in spiritual growth. You see uh, Moses being impacted by his father-in-law Jethro. Uh, you see the Queen of Sheba being impacted by Solomon. You see even the influence David had on the King of Tyre and more. And even though, again, that term is not used there, it is everywhere in the Old Testament. And nowhere else in the Old Testament is it clearly defined except here in Deuteronomy 6. It's made pointedly and clearly in this particular passage. So I'm going to give you some major points, and then we'll talk about the process together. Number one in your outline, if you're going to be discipling and influencing others, there's got to be the exhortation to obey the God of the Word. We need to be obedient, and an obedient in a particular manner. The first three verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6 exhorts the new generation three ways, reminding them of God's amazing love for them. And God's love is obvious in his desires for everyone to, to go well for the nation. And uh, like every loving parent, God wants his people to have the best. He wants the best for his children. And that, of course, will only work out as they cooperate with his plans through obedience to his word. And so Moses reminds them in verse 1, the nation that God commanded him, Moses, to teach them God's word. Take a look at verse 1. It says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments with the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Now that, of course, was an easy, easy process for him, right? It was simple to teach the Israelites, correct? Are you with me on this? Please say no. <laughs> they were somewhat stubborn. Would you agree? A little bit hard-hearted? We're not being judgmental here. That's manifest here in the Old Testament. This is a tough assignment. The children of Israel were stiff-necked by nature. And even though they had the motivation that, hey, mom and dad blew it and we don't want to, that was motivating them. They are also slaves by profession in their past and therefore teaching them would not be an easy task. And verse 1 is not merely a, an educational process or an intellectual process. The word teach there in verse 1, as you look at it, that word teach actually means to train. God's goal in commanding Moses here is, is not just to fill their heads with new information, but to change their conduct. He wants them to grow, to become more like Yahweh. And Moses is not to offer opinions or listen to everybody's suggestions. He is to teach, thus saith the Lord, the absolutes of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and the starting place for growth for you and the starting place for you to influence others is to have God's word be the final authority now practically parents you know this is true right you can't tell your kids listen obey the Bible if you're not obeying the Bible correct please nod your head I mean understand and we sometimes are tempted to do that to fill their heads with God's word without actually seeking to live it out ourselves 
which then creates a level of hypocrisy. So early on, Moses is establishing that this has got to be lived out. And and again, question, Christian, is what God says in the Bible always best, always right? And every time you disagree with him in the word, have you accepted the fact that you are wrong and he is right? Have you gotten there? Because that's where the God is establishing his authority. And that's when we see his authority over your home and over the church is when God's word is the authority. And if you're ever going to be used of God to impact your children or any other person, it will be as the Bible is the authority and rule book in your life. And in verse 2, Moses exhorts the nation that they will impact the next generation only if they fear the Lord and keep His commandments. Look at verse 2. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Your children must see And they must hear that whatever the Bible commands, you parents obey it. They must see that. They must hear it. They must see it. It is the love letter that you respond in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the operation manual that you function by to run your home. It is the orders that you obey from your great commander. It is the Bible. And it needs to be not just heard but seen. And there needs to be with it a great fear and respect extended to the Lord God. That's what he says in verse 2. You see it there? The fear of the Lord. And the idea of fear is not to cringe or to cower, but the idea is to reverence in your heart, to exalt God as the highest because of who He is. Israel knew God was awesome. I mean, they had witnessed that all these judgments had fallen upon the Egyptians, right? And yet they were spared supernaturally. They saw that. They knew of the pillar of fire and the cloud that still existed within and around the tabernacle. They're witnessing that now. They know that God is powerful. They know He's their King. And they were to fear Him and respect Him. And if they feared Him, they'd obey Him. And then they would teach their family to fear the Lord and obey Him above all. And that's what's happening here as He sets the stage So now every generation following can enjoy the blessings of a long life and more. Look at verse 3. Moses expects and exhorts the new generation to carefully obey God's word. It says, Israel, you should listen and be careful to what? To do it. Does God want you to be a hearer of the word or a what? A doer of the word. That it may be well with you, he says. That it may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Moses says, since the time of Abraham, the God of your biological and spiritual fathers has been promising you this land that is now behind me. You understand the setting here. He's preaching these sermons. He's up in the mountains of Moab. He's overlooking the Rift Valley and off in the distance is Israel. So he's preaching these sermons and they're looking at the land of Israel that God has promised them. And he said, this land is yours. But it's going to come as you walk in obedience. So now as you're about to receive this land promise, make sure you're careful to do God's Word. And make no mistake, Christian, you're not blessed by merely what you hear. You're blessed by what you do and how you respond to God's Word. 
It doesn't mean that you can always apply everything you hear, but we should be putting into practice what we hear from God's Word. And blessing is promised to the doers of the Word. Look at verse 1. The land, look at it carefully, where you are going over to possess it. This is going to be a blessing. Verse 2, that the days, your days may be prolonged. You're going to live longer. Verse 3, for the obedient, you may be multiplied greatly. You're going to have a lot of kids in the land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, there's a, all kinds of blessing promised here, right? And he motivates obedience by promising blessing. And he wants Israel to succeed. He desires them. And this obedience is going to bring great blessing. But they can't do this in their own strength, and neither can we. You're going to hear repeatedly through the course of discipleship that it's really not us, but God through us. Amen to that? It's going to be God working through us. In fact, later on in Deuteronomy, you'll have verses like this in chapter 10, verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve Him and cling to Him. Do you see the dependency there, clinging to Him? He actually says it again in Deuteronomy 13.4. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. I like to see that as that's how we are when we seek to be filled with the Spirit, when we seek to have God work through us, when we seek to glorify God. We're depending on Him to work through us. Amen to that? We're vessels that God works through. Only God could glorify God, and therefore we want God to glorify Himself through us as we walk in obedience. So we need to depend on Him. But in order to pull all this off and to rely on Him and stick close to Him, we're going to need to also take some other steps and perspectives here. And so to disciple, you want to live in dependent obedience to the Word of God. Number two in your outline, you want to be embracing God's character and loving relationship. You want to be embracing God's character and loving relationship. Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Then look at verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so first, you want to embrace an accurate theology. Right? If your kids are... You want them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to influence somebody else. You've got to have an accurate picture of who God is. Correct? And therefore, verse 4 the Lord is Israel's God. He is one God. He is the only God. And one God is the true God. Now, being one here does not diminish the Trinity. God is one, and yet He is three. But the unity of God here and God's greatness as being the only God and the worthy God, the one true God, and not the plethora of gods being worshipped in Canaan, but the one God, He is not many capricious gods. He is the one true God, the only God. Right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will come to the Father through any other means except Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? One God. That's it. And they need to understand this, that all else are false. Only one true God. Now, there's much more I could say to this. If Mike Riccardi were here, he'd spend another hour on this particular phrase. But he's not, so let's move on. To train others, especially your children, you need to have a healthy and accurate theology. You really do. That means you need to know the Word. Now, do you have an accurate theology? I mean, it's actually lived out. Do you believe that in your life there are accidents? Or do you believe that God's absolutely sovereign? Right? There are no accidents. 
Do you believe that you should be a part of those who accept the confusion of the sexes? Or do you believe that God made male and female? Do you believe in a big bang? Or that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days? And do you believe that dinosaurs were killed by a giant meteorite millions of years ago? Or were they on the ark and eventually died out? I could go on and on. That's what you say when you run out of material. But I could go on and on. Do you have a sound theology? The second thing that you desperately need is to embrace a loving, genuine relationship. You know, you're not attractive to anyone and you're not going to impact anyone for Jesus Christ if there's not a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Correct? And so he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. God is worthy of your entire life in loving obedience. And God himself freely loves his people. And Moses says then God's people should reciprocate. Love God with all your emotional volition, all your personality, all your mental and physical vigor, all of it. You're all in. You have decided that Christ is overall and he's over every priority. He's over your children. He's over your marriage. He's more important than your job. He's more important than your possessions. He is all. No division, no other master, no other first love. God is your one and only. He is your one. There's nothing held back, nothing held in reserve. And if you want to impact your children, you want to disciple others for Christ, it will be as you have a deep and healthy theology and a genuine love relationship with Jesus Christ. Train others. Remember this. You cannot impart what you do not possess. Are you tracking with me? Um, <clears throat> my name is Mueller. <clears throat> and uh, it's a little confusing because people think, oh, you're German. Well, I have a, a, a dubious past. My grandma was unsaved and she uh, basically, uh, uh, we found out that our heritage is that we're Irish and Belgian. Uh, we discovered this later in life. I'm not ashamed because it doesn't really matter. I'm in Christ. It doesn't matter. <laughs> The great thing uh, that comes from that is that I, I tend to be very white. Have you noticed that? Uh, and there are times that if I put on shorts and I was out in the sun, you might be actually burned in your retinas from looking at my <laughs> skin. And just imagine me trying to, as I'm walking around with this white, 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 white skin, selling you suntan lotion. Wouldn't that be good? And, you know, you might, you might even be tempted if I was a good salesman to buy some, but you'd probably be wondering, well, wait a minute, if it's so good, how come you're so white? Uh, you know, I, in other words, why don't you get a little more tan and sell this stuff and maybe I'll, I'll buy a truckload of it. But other than that, you, you, you'd actually don't possess, uh, you know, the, the, the basically the, 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 the conviction and the experience and the proof that this is good stuff. Some of the men in the room are bald. I imagine them coming around going, I've got hair restorer here that works a miracle. <laughs> the reason I say that is you, you can't impart what you don't possess. And if you're not knowing Christ with a sound theology and intimate with him and enjoying that relationship with him where you're sold out yourself, you cannot impart what you do not possess. 
Parents, if you're frustrated with where your children are, maybe you're asking the wrong question about your children. Maybe you should be asking about, where am I at with the Lord? Moses now tells this nation of families how to train their children. And understand, in this context, as he's preaching to them, there, there is no synagogue. There are no schools at this point. And so God takes the focus of training that next generation, puts it squarely on mom and dad. And he says, you need to impact your children. We call it parenting. I think it should be discipleship. And understand, this is not one-on-one. Some of you think discipleship, you think, I've got to meet with a guy at a restaurant, and we're going to go through a book one-on-one. That's not what's being taught here. Otherwise, it'd be, you know, the father would have a son and the mother would have a daughter and then that would be it. Okay, there there are multiple children in the family and they're investing in multiple people. It's not a one-on-one thing. It's not a Bible study. It's the Bible being lived out, intentionally taught, formally taught, informally lived out in all of life. It's a process. And it means that you sometimes learn from your failures more than your successes. Can I hear an amen to that? We grow. And and, and then all of a sudden we think, well, I'm going to impact them. Sometimes you impact others through your failures. Would you agree with that? I remember often apologizing to my sons for my impatience. That taught them something. That I wanted to grow in patience and I wanted to manifest that patience. I'm sure that none of you have ever run out of patience with your children. But for me, it was a big issue. And I, they saw progress in my life. And the amazing thing is I apologized. I could never finish the apology when they would say, it's okay, Dad. I get it. We are in this together. Learning and growing together from our successes and our failures. So that God would be manifested We live in an imperfect fallen world. You're not going to be perfect until you get to heaven. Yes? Therefore, we're going to learn from our successes and our failures as we mentor others and respond to our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of others biblically. And therefore, we need to learn how to do that. And that's what you have in point number three in your outline, the essential commitment to train children to obey God's word. Now, this... Thus far, Moses has taught you to impact the next generation to includes a dependent, clinging obedience to God's word. Number two, to have a correct view of God, a deep and healthy theology in verse four. Then number three, a sold out, all in, deep and genuine love relationship with Christ in verse five. And now in verses six through nine, Moses is actually going to talk about the process of discipleship, the process of mentoring. He's going to command fathers to take the lead, impact their children by following Yahweh, for us Christ, through obedience to God's word. And in doing so, he's going to describe four steps, four ways that you influence. And you need to mark these down. You should probably put them in the margin of your Bible, how to impact your children and others. He's teaching them how to disciple, impact the next generation. He's demonstrating for you the process of discipleship right here. And the entire focus of verses 6 through 9 is the home. Because there are no synagogues. There are no other elements of education here. It's got to happen there. Discipleship starts in the family. So write these in your Bible. Memorize them. Here they are. Four different ways to impact others according to 
God's word given to Moses to the nation of Israel, first in your outline, constant preoccupation and saturation in God's word. Constant preoccupation and saturation in God's word. I call this model training, modeling it. Verse 6, these words, look at it now very carefully. Verse 6, which I am commanding you today shall be on your what? Your heart. Your heart. Moses telling the nation of families how to train their kids. There's no New Testament church. What's he saying to them? The Ten Commandments were etched in stone so that we remember them. But understand, stone tablets are not enough. Having the Bible is not enough. Coming to a seminar is not enough. Uh, just uh, formal teaching is not enough. Not posters, stickers, embroidery, bumper stickers. God's Word is to be on your what? Heart. Moses says the truth must be a consuming preoccupation with your heart. Passionate heart concern. The thought of the Hebrew, on your heart, that phrase, it actually means weight. It means burden, a concern. Ladies, you know what this is like when you're cooking in the oven. You have a concern that you don't forget that something's cooking in the oven. It weighs on you. Yes? Well, that's the same thing. I want God's Word to weigh on you, to be on your heart, that it's constantly in your mind, that you're thinking about it. Otherwise, it's going to burn. You know, it, it, One of the reasons that we're not investing God's revealed truth in our families is that God's Word, His truth, is not on our hearts. It's gone, gone cold in us. The, the fizz has gone out of the Coke. Parents, it, it, it's more than showing up occasionally. Students, you, you can't allow yourself to have this whatever mentality. You need to be intentional about it. It needs to be on your heart. Well, how did it happen? Well, simply, you, sometimes we allow our relationship with Christ to become routine. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but there isn't a Christian in this room that has not at one point felt that their relationship with Christ has become routine. And we need to say, we need to get it off the routine and back on fire and back on genuine moment-by-moment -moment dependence and a genuine alive relationship if we're going to impact others. You want your children to be more thoughtful? It's really not that difficult. Ask God to cause you to grow to be a more thoughtful person. I used to pray all the time, God, would you please change my sons? Please, please, please change them. Please save them. And then change them. And then it hit me. I was praying wrong. I said, Lord, change me. So that they might see that change and be impacted by the process of me growing and me becoming more like Christ. I want my children to trust you. Well, then I should trust and manifest that trust. I want them to care for others. Well, then I should manifest that care. I want them to become more evangelistic. Then I should be more evangelistic. I want them to serve others. Well, then I should be more of a servant. It's how God impacts us that impacts them. It's on our heart. Impacting your children, training others, discipleship only occurs when you think about the word, speak it, apply it, use it, chew on it, ask about it, meditate on it, talk about it, study it, quote it, and most importantly, live by it. 
what Mike was saying last night. It's about proclaiming Christ. Well, Christ is manifest in His Word. It's the same thing. We're saying the same thing. Constantly. Family devotions are nice. But they're not enough. I'm sorry. They're not. Bible study is great. But that's not sufficient. Sunday school is awesome. Bible classes at church are, can be deep. God's Word must be on your what? Heart. On your heart. Model a passion for Christ's Word. When, you, when, when that's true of you, when you're moving the kids around the store in the shopping cart, you're going to talk about the Scripture. You're going to explain things. I remember sometimes this is, you know, offers challenges too, right? So I'm explaining to my sons why I discipline them. Now, they were perfect children, but they got lots of discipline. And I know that might be a sore spot and a difficulty, okay? But they did. Well, they understood what the Bible had to say about it. I taught them. And so here I am going through the store. And then there's other children in the store. And these children are acting up. And my sons, as loud as possible, would say, That kid needs a spanking, Dad! The word was on their heart. <laughs> it offers challenges. Students suffer a defeat. If it's on your heart, you'll speak to them about the truth of God's word. When the disciple battles with people and there's been some difficulty there, you show them God's word. Keep it simple. You want to show them Christ. Well, then continually speak of what Christ would say and Christ would do found in his word. Be preoccupied and saturated in God's word. Secondly, diligently, formally instruct them with God's Word. Diligent, formal instruction of God's Word. Teach them. That's the teaching process. Verse 7 says, very clearly, look at it, you shall what? Teach them diligently to your sons. Teach is a very formal word here. It means instruction. So there is instruction. It's greater than instruction. It means to train. It literally is to point in a direction. You're showing your kids and disciples which way to go by showing them what God expects of them from His Word. And Moses is talking about structured, repetitive learning. Please write that down. Structured, repetitive learning. When you teach someone God's Word, do they get it first time, yes or no? Often not. So you keep teaching it. You say... I keep saying the same things. That's why I love the church. Because I'd be teaching my kids and pouring into them and just agonizing with them. <laughs> and they would come home from a youth gathering. And they'd go, Dad, you can't believe what Peter taught us. It was incredible. I mean, this truth is awesome. And I'd be going in my head, I've been teaching this same truth for 10 years. But would I say that? No. I would say, awesome, son. Praise God, you got it. Right? Because they would learn from God's Word. And then I'd go in my, ba in my bedroom and I'd go, I've been teaching them this for ten years. <laughs> Moses is talking about a commitment to formal instruction in the home. And this teaching happens through biblical churches 
It needs to happen also in the home. Don't fall into the attitude that the church take care of this. This is something that needs to be modeled in the home. You're to instruct them in the home. It says, look at what he says in verse 7 there. You shall teach them what kind diligently. And that word diligently has this idea of of a, a, a knife that's being sharpened again and again and again on a whetstone. Just keep doing it again and again and again. The next generation is being trained in God's word. But the teaching, training is to be incredibly fruitful. It must be sourced in mom and dad if it's going to really work. You know, it's, it's conservatively estimated, they do these kind of studies, that the average child will ask between one half and one million questions in the process of growing up. And if you're here this morning and you have a five-year-old, you're convinced that the, you've already reached a million. And Moses actually gives an illustration of it. Take a look. You're hopefully there in Deuteronomy 6. Look at verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, verse 20, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Verse 21, then you will say, what? What will you say, Dad? What will you say? You'll say, go ask your mother. (laughs) You see that right there? That's the reverse standard version. Your children are going to ask you questions, and the greatest thing that that should do in the life of a believing father is force him to dig into God's Word. And there were multiple times, even as a pastor, I would say, you know what, son, I'm going to do a study, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to answer that question. I'm going to actually study God's Word. I wanted them to know that I I would have to go and research that. I wanted them to model that for them. I didn't always have to have the answer right and ready or there. I wanted to walk through it systematically with them. Your children will ask you questions that will force you to put down deep shafts into the Word of God to come up with the correct answers. It is a good thing for dads. And Moses adds, verse 7, that diligence, which is that sharpening over and over and over again. Listen, you know that great athletes practice the same thing again and again and again. We have American baseball. Great athletes will swing a bat a thousand times a day. Great golfers will swing a club a thousand times a day. A thousand. Repetition again and again, and again, until it becomes second nature. Great coaches run the same plays again, and again, and again. Those of you who are older know that the greatest football team that ever existed was the Green Bay Packers. And they were coached by Vince Lombardi, and Vince Lombardi had a a coaching technique which was unique. He only taught the Green Bay Packers literally six plays. But they ran those plays so often and so much and repetition that whenever one of those plays was busted, the players automatically knew how to respond and actually gain more yardage because of it. Because they knew how to respond to each other. And it was over and over and over again. And that's what he's talking about. I want God's word to be over and over and over again till they begin to see there's no other way. This is the right way. This is God's way. This is the way that makes sense. This is, this is the way that honors Him and glorifies Him. And you seek to pursue diligent, formal training of God's Word. Maybe you walk through Romans. Maybe you walk through the Old Testament with them. Maybe you should just have a time where you're working through issues with them. But it's formal training. Number three, the third element of how you impact the next generation, how you disciple, repetitive, informal application of God's Word. I call this talk training. And the reason I call it that is because that's how Moses describes it. In verse 7, the second half, he says, look at it. You shall talk of them. He's talking about God's commands. 
when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Moses says training is not only formal, it's informal. And he says, I want you to teach them, but I want you to talk about the God's Word. I want you to talk. This informal Word is being expressed here. It is a relationship discipleship. It's not just formal training. And this describes spontaneous learning, which is the most effective kind of learning. The most effective learning that ever takes place is informal. When your children watch you and you talk about it on the way. When your disciples watch you and they see you living out the truth throughout life, that's when they're impacted. It points to a misperception about teaching that we have. People often think that you have to create four walls and a formal thing and sit down and walk them through the text. And Moses says, I want you to talk about God's Word. When? Look what he says. When you sit in your house, you're hanging out. You're just sitting in your house. Talk about God's Word. Talk about how it relates to every aspect of life. And then when you walk by the way, when you're out and about at school, at work, and shopping, and chores, traveling, going, when you're going for a walk, you talk about what's on your heart. And what's on your heart? God's Word. Christ Himself. When you lie down and when you rise up, before you go to sleep, the first thing you do when you wake up, you talk about what's on your heart. What should be on your heart is what? To impact them? The Word of God. We're missing it today, friends. We, we need to have the Word of God on our hearts so that it's talked about in the informal ways. The most powerful way you can influence anybody is to just live for Christ in everyday life. This is uh, one of my mentors called this the parable perspective. Every object, every person, every event of everyday life becomes a potential biblical lesson. Don't you love that? To teach truth about God's Word. The color of fish. You're snorkeling and you see all the color of fish. You go, isn't God creative? Look at the mind that made this. Wow. And you begin to explore that together. You look at the ants and you go, wow, look at how busy they are. Yeah, Proverbs talks about that. We need to be busy. We need to work hard. Look at the ant, you sluggard, right? You look at a dog. It returns to it vomit. There's all kinds of wonderful lessons in that. You look at a cat. What's a cat teach us? Satan fell from heaven. That's what a cat teaches us. <laughs> Don't clap for that. <laughs> All the cat lovers now aren't going to listen to anything. This is very practical down to earth. Would you agree? I mean, Moses is saying, look, just live it out. Put it into practice. Help for moms and dads. Everyday life situations. This is the place where the most powerful learning while sitting, while walking, while lying down, while rising up. I'm an Israel father. Understand their situation. Would skillfully weave God's commandments in every, every life in the promised land while they're sowing, while they're weeping, while they're threshing, while they're gathering grain into barns. There would be no daily life situation where they could not then mentor their constantly present sons. There's no schools they're going off to. The sons are with them. They're preparing them for spiritual leadership in their own homes. So they're investing into their children. I used to take my boys out for one-on-ones. We called it mini vacations. This was basically, my wife would give me a honeydew list. I know that never happens here, but I would have chores that I would need to accomplish to get the house up to speed. 
And so I would take one of my boys with me. I always separated them uh, because, it, it, not always, but it gave me a, a real good focused time with one of them. And uh, we would go after it. And then we'd go out afterwards as we got the things and we're getting it back to do the job. And anyway, we'd get an ice cream or something or a favorite snack and we'd just talk. Just create an opportunity to talk. And we'd use some of the things we're doing to talk about the scripture and how God built into our lives or what God does and how he relates to our lives and how he impacts us. And it made it an honest ability for me to actually disciple my children. Creating that opportunity. The difficulty in Christian parenting and discipleship is many parents haven't learned to enjoy God and enjoy life and to see it as something that is a blessing. And so their children see this oppressiveness instead of a delighting in the Lord and Him being on their heart, it's somehow forced upon them. And this delighting in this process is what's the most fruitful training of all. When they see you loving the Lord, rejoicing, singing His praise, seeing Him everywhere with joy and, and His creation and basically helping them a lens to look at life and to look at the world through His eyes, what a delighting thing that can be. A powerful tool to influence them for this kingdom. Uh, the struggle with Christian students in California, and you know California, right? The land of fruits, nuts, and flakes. You got that, right? <laughs> That students wake up in California, the first thing on their mind is not God's word, it's their phone. And Moses says, I want you to talk about God's word the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night. And that's a Hebrew expression saying the totality of life is to be on your heart. Practice repetitive, informal application of God's word, the parable perspective. Number four, the fourth way in which to influence is conforming every aspect of life to God's word. This is habit training. Habit training. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall bind or be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. Columbia University spent uh, actually a quarter million dollars to determine the most influential people in any child's life. And they determined what we already know. It was the family. And sometimes we're worried about they're going to be influenced by others. And as they get older, it seems like they're going to be influenced by others. But the greatest impact in a student's life will be his parents. And some of the Jews errantly misinterpreted these statements as literal. So they actually tie up little phylacteries and mezuzahs on their house and phylacteries on their wrist and on their forehead. And God's intent here is symbolic. To hear the scripture, to see the scripture lived out everywhere. So Moses says, I want you to take the truth of God's word and bind it on your hand. What do you mean by that? That symbolizes the word of God controlling all your actions. Everything you did was to be controlled by God's word. I want you to bind it on your forehead, so, but right between the eyes. So your thinking, your seeing, your attitudes, your values are guided by God's word. He says, I want your children to place the word of God on the doorposts of their home. So the most personal area of your life, the most private area of your life is guided by God's word. One of the worst things you can do to influence someone is to be one way at church and another way at home. My mentor, John MacArthur, told me very early when he visited me at, at the birth of my sons. And he said, Chris, just be the same guy at church as you are at home and be the same guy at home as you are at church and you'll not have a problem. And that's what he's saying here. Be that person. 
And then he said, I want you to place God's commands on the city gates, which means in the city gates in the Eastern culture, that's the courts where they met. That's the business where it was transacted. It's the marketplace of life. He says, in all of life, the word of God is to penetrate, to be so pervasive that it's everywhere, everything about you. It's the most personal aspect of your bedroom to the most public aspect of community life. God's command should become the habit of everyday life. You interpret everything you do in light of God's word. When your children or your disciples see that, they see the legitimacy and the reality of Jesus Christ. And now you're going to be at least a tool that can impact them if God so chooses to in which to follow Christ. So let's take it home. You cannot impact others in your own strength. Can I hear an amen to that? You've seen the messiness of this. You understand it. You need to be saved. You need to be in a genuine relationship with Christ. I mean, you can't be impacting them for Christ if you're not in Christ. And therefore, if you're finding yourself going, I have no desire for this. I have no desire to put Christ on display. I have no desire to walk in His Word and have every aspect of life be under His Word. Then it could be exposing a heart that is not born again. And therefore, could you cry out to God? And say, give me a heart that desires to worship you, to follow you, to be in you. Uh, Give me a heart that allows me to express faith in you and dependence upon you and to turn from my sin to repentance. Give me that heart. It could be that you are being exposed because this is not your world at all. And if that's the case, maybe you need to cry out for salvation. That Christ would redeem you. Understand, it's not just justification salvation correct it's not just that god justifies you and makes you right with god he also regenerates you and that means he gives you a new heart and that new heart romans 6 6 tells us you want to obey you want to follow by his word you desire to please him even when you fail to you still desire to and therefore if you have don't have that desire it may be that you need christ And then for us believers, we need to be clinging to God's Spirit. According to God's Word, remembering that God is the one who sanctifies. God is the one who then works through us. And therefore, we need to be energized and saying, God, I can't do this in my own strength. My kids are a challenge. Uh, I just saw a video the other day of moms of little girls and moms of boys. And they made a humorous difference between walking into the room, oh, little princess, nice that you cleaned up the room, and the mom of sons walks in the room and go, this place is a pigsty! You know, it's real interesting. Uh, I had sons, and I agree with that. Um, it's a little different, a little challenging, di- different challenges as they get older. But understand, we can't do this on our own. We have to depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to depend on His Spirit. Amen to that? The zeal, number two, of your love of Christ is the foundation for your impact for Christ. As you love Christ and sold out devotion as your first love, your highest love, with love that more than your spouse, more than your children, more than your disciples, then you will have that, in a sense, heart that is then able to impact others. It's only as you love Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength you're going to impact others for Christ, including your children. So the first question to ask 
as you seek to impact your children and others is to examine your own heart and say, do I love Christ first? Do I love him most? Do I love him zealously? Are you here and have you turned from your sin and repentance and relying on Christ and his death on the cross for sin and his resurrection from the dead by faith? And then, is he truly your first love? It's an issue that we should be regularly asking ourselves. Number three, training involves preoccupation and saturation in God's Word in order to teach God's Word and talk about God's Word. Uh, The greater your depth in God's Word, the greater you'll be able to influence. And the more things that you're reading and, and that you're studying, then that becomes a part of what comes out of you because it's on your heart. If you're not regularly in God's Word, it's not going to be on your heart. And therefore, it's not just attendance at church, but it's your own personal time with the Lord. It's your own study of the Scripture. To impact others, you need regular input of God's Word to be in your mind, systematically studying God's Word. Maybe you need to challenge yourself to say, I need to learn the Old Testament. I'm afraid of the Old Testament. I need to learn it. I need to understand in depth the book of Romans. I want to know the theme of every book of the Bible. Whatever it is, challenge yourself so that God's Word is on your mind and on your heart. And number four, training is difficult labor, but it promises great reward. There's, there's nothing more difficult than working with people. There's nothing more messy than trying to cultivate an intentional relationship for the purpose of growing like Christ. Nothing takes more time than aiding others to become like Christ and coming alongside them. It can be more disappointing when a disciple turns away or rejects you. Nothing can be more rewarding, though, when a disciple is used of God to impact others for Jesus Christ. Nothing. Paul even said to his beloved Philippians, he said this amazing statement, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, My beloved brethren, I love that, whom I long to see, and then he calls them my joy and my crown. They were Paul's reward. And those Paul disciples are his eternal reward. And those you disciple will be your eternal reward. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just a brief study into Deuteronomy 6. We pray, Father, that though there is so much more to see in this passage, that enough of it would then impact us and begin to move us and transform us so that your word would be on our heart, so that we might be mindful of how we impact others just by our daily behavior. And Father, that we would commit to formally training our children Lord, that we would also recognize that your word is is a treasure to delight in because it is your will, your heart. It is an expression of who you are. So we pray, Father, that you would work in our midst and mold us into the men and women you want us to be. No matter what our age, that we would be those that would then seek to influence others around us in the body of Christ uniquely. And Father, if there are any here who have no desire in this realm that don't want to follow your word, we pray, Father, that you would expose that heart, crush them, help them to see their own sinfulness, that they would cry out for a Savior to not only be forgiven, but to be then transformed so that they might be useful and they not bring you glory in the greatest possible way. And we'll give you all the thanks and all the glory And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.